0: Again, good morning and welcome to Christ the King. Uh, I understand that uh, we're having some difficulties with our visual on our Facebook feed, so if you are tuning in via Facebook, uh, you'll just have to uh, listen rather than uh, see. So our apologies for that. It's something we continue to work on. But now as we turn to God's word, allow me to lead us in a word of prayer. This from our opening hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. We ask you to lead us, O King Eternal, we follow you not with fears, for gladness breaks like the morning, wherever thy face appears. Thy cross is lifted over us, we journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest, so lead on, O God of might. And as we turn to your word, O Christ, we ask that you would lead us, you would open up our hearts to your word, and your word to our hearts, so that as we study your word, you will draw us closer to yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage this morning is a familiar one. Uh, This idea of discipleship involving us, uh, the deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, that is a sentiment I've heard before, maybe some of you have heard before. We're going to look at this, and I've just been reminded of how important it is, especially when we come across a passage that you may be familiar with. It's so important for us to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. Seen this before. I know what it means. Pick up your cross, follow Jesus, got it. It's important that we take the time to think, now what is God? Jesus saying, how would those who first have heard him understood his commands, and then how does it apply to us? So this morning, I'll attempt to explain the passage under three headings. The first is the necessity of the cross. Second is the consequences of loyalty. And third, the promise of vindication. So, and after I explain the passage, I'm going to draw... uh, Make one implication, then leave us with one application. So, with that, we'll begin. As we explain the passage, the first heading is the necessity of the cross. So, follow along with me. You can see the passage printed for you. And there you'll find some sermon notes in your leaflet as well. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his his. Disciples, And that word show is is a unique word. Normally when Jesus is saying something or when anyone is saying anything in the Bible, they simply use the word tell. Jesus told them or Jesus said, do this, that, or the other. When the Bible uses this word show, it's used to describe something, to reveal something that is surprising, uh, unanticipated, new. So for instance, uh, you may be familiar with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of all sorts of new, unexpected, exciting things. And that book begins as follows. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave the author to show or to reveal his servants the things that soon must take place. Something new is being shown. Something new is being revealed. And that same word is used here. Jesus is going to tell us something new, unexpected, unanticipated. What is it? Well, here it is. He showed them, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed on the third day. That is new, unexpected, and surprising. Uh, Just a little bit of a review from last week. Last week, we encountered the story that just immediately precedes this one in which Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. Now, that was a very hopeful term, Every man, woman, and child of of that time, every Jewish man, woman, and child had great hopes for the coming Messiah, that they would restore the political fortunes of the nation of Israel. Their hopes for the Messiah were a very earthly hope, a very political hope that the Romans would be cast off and they would be restored again to their national glory. And now Jesus describes his mission, and it's not a mission of victory to victory onto uh, one success after another, no. His, his mission will be one of suffering, death, and then vindication, following death. That's new. That's surprising. Just how new? Just how surprising was it? Well, just note Peter's response. Peter, the disciple, who just identified Jesus as Messiah, now responds to Jesus' mission. He does not say, Jesus, you know, that's an interesting idea for your uh, Messiah's ship. But let me, let me suggest another alternative uh, for your mission. No, he rebukes him. That's that same word that Jesus used to rebuke the wind and the waves. This is not a gentle correction. This is a full-throated. No, you've got it wrong. That's how new, how surprising this mission was for Jesus to suffer and die. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter Get behind me, Satan, reveals his own understanding of the centrality of his suffering and death. It is essential that he do these things. It's not a maybe, it's not a will be, it is a must. I must do these things. Go suffer die and anyone or anything that stands in the way of my mission is not from God but from his enemy and therefore this surprisingly unmatched harsh response get behind me Satan the necessity of the cross not a point two the consequences for the loyalty of loyalty for the disciples and so Jesus says, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, note that there is a conditionality to discipleship. Jesus is clear on his cross. This is what he must do. But there is an implied if then for the disciples. This is what I'm going to do, says Jesus. If you, go, if you want to follow me, then this is what it will cost. And he explains the cost of discipleship in vivid terms. And here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, then, I'm inserting a then in verse 24, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, each of those phrases can suffer from trivialization. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. We can hear those and not really wrestle with just how stark that must have sounded to those who first heard it. Well, I think when I hear deny yourself, what I hear is practice self-denial. Right? If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to practice self-denial. That sounds reasonable. That sounds something that Christians should do, right? You should practice self-denial. Would you believe that nowhere in the Bible that it, does it say you should practice self-denial? This idea that there's some good that comes from just holding back from good things. That's not a biblical idea. No, self-control is a very biblical uh, quality. Exercise self-control, that may lead to self-denial. You should deny uh, your impulse to anger, you deny some of your more base appetites, that may lead to self-control or or self-denial. But this idea that there's some good things that you should just deny for the sake of denial, that's really not a biblical idea. And what Jesus asks of his disciples is far more demanding than giving up chocolate. Right? That's what you do in Lent. You deny yourself chocolate. Jesus is not saying, if anyone wants to follow me, let them give up chocolate and sweets. And off we go. Nope. He says, anyone wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves. Now, we've encountered this word denial again in the Gospels. Peter says it, or it is said of Peter that he will deny Jesus three times. And think of that story with me. Peter, it's a trial of Jesus. A slave girl confronts Peter and says, you know him, you're a friend of his. And Peter denies or even disowns the Lord. Peter says, I don't know the guy. I don't care about the guy. I have nothing to do with the guy. And Jesus is, you see, Peter disowns Christ. And that may be a better word for us to use. Anyone wants to follow me? Disown yourself. Your hopes? Don't care about them. Your dreams? Don't care about them. They're secondary. Deny yourself completely. You see, there's a big difference between the practice of self denial and denying yourself in its entirety. And that's what Jesus says. Hold on, it gets worse. Not only must we deny ourselves, we must pick up our cross. And again, this is a phrase that suffers from trivialization. We may refer to our crosses as frustrations. Everyone has their cross to bear, as we think about going to the grocery store and waiting in line. No, that is not the cross that Jesus had in mind. When these first disciples heard, they must pick up their cross. There's only one image that they had in mind. And make a note of this in your sermon notes, but if you and I were to see a man carrying the crossbar, and that was the Roman pattern of crucifixion, the condemned would carry the crossbar to the place of their execution. The place of their execution would be a vertical bar, and the condemned would be fixed to the horizontal bar and then fixed upon the vertical bar. If you were to see and I were to see a man carrying a crossbar, you and I would not say, what are you doing? We would know exactly what they were doing. They were a condemned man going to their death. Let me pause and just remind us of what this passage has taught us so far. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but this Christ will not bring about the restoration or salvation in this life. There's not going to be a political restoration. He's going to go to a suffering and death and eventual vindication. Further... If anyone wants to follow him, they are signing up for the same fate. His disciples must deny themselves completely and follow Jesus to his grave. Now that just sounds like a bad deal. I mean, why would anyone say, please, sign me up? But that's exactly what Eleven, ten out of the eleven of these disciples did take Judas Iscariot out of the equation who denied Christ. Ten out of the eleven original disciples denied themselves to the point of death. Peter, Andrew, and Philip actually picked up their little literal cross. They were crucified just like Christ was. Seven others went to various forms of martyrdom. What compelled them to say, yes, that sounds like a great idea. I will. Do exactly what you say deny myself and pick up my cross and follow you to the grave That's a great question Let's continue on in our passage Note verse 25 begins with a series of phrases that begins with the word for For whoever would save his life will lose it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world forfeits his soul for the son of man is coming going to come with his angels in the glory of his father Those statements, each of which begin with four, are building an argument. As if Jesus is anticipating this very question. Why would anyone want to do what I just described? Well, here's why. Because whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You can insert the word because for that first word for in verse 25. Why should we pick up our cross follow you? Because... Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will the prophet, a man, etc. Jesus tells his disciples that they should do what he is asking them to do. Deny themselves, pick up the cross. Because if they do, they'll find themselves. They will receive true life, real life. They will find who they really are. So now the the next question, the next logical question, why will losing my life, Jesus, for you result in me finding my life? And verse 27 answers that question. Here's why. Because the Son of Man will come with angels and the glory of his Father in heaven, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, again, just consider the clear logic of Jesus' argument. Why should you pick up your cross? Why should you follow him even to the grave? Here's why. Because if you do, you will find life. Why will following you result in life? Because I'm going to return one day and repay everyone according to what they have done. In my sermon notes, I summarize Jesus' arguments. Remain faithful to Jesus because there is an ultimate final judgment to come. And finding or losing life will depend upon the outcome of that judgment. And here's my aha moment as I studied this passage. My aha moment was that I'd always viewed this passage of finding yourself and losing yourself as as a reward for this earthly life. As if Jesus were saying, you don't want to live a small-minded, selfish life. No, no, you don't want to be like Scrooge of the Christmas Carol. You want to give yourself to some noble cause. You want to lose yourself for the cause of Christ. And if you do that, then you're going to find yourself. And while that may be true, that is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not telling us that the reward for our discipleship will be found in this earthly life. This passage is teaching us instead that after this life is complete, there will come a judgment. And the man who will judge is the same one who says, Now follow me. And the result of Jesus' judgment is that some will receive true life and some will lose their life. In the same way we can trivialize the cost of discipleship thinking of minor inconveniences as carrying our cross, we can trivialize the reward rewards of discipleship. And the rewards of discipleship is not a full, meaningful life here and now. The rewards of discipleship are the weight of glory that will come in eternity when the Son of Man returns and bestows upon those that are faithful to him true life, real life, That is the reward for your discipleship. And it is no shame to think of our discipleship in terms of rewards. These early disciples were motivated by the hope of eternity. So here is one implication. If your hope in Christ is limited to this world, you are to be pitied. That's not me talking. That's actually the Apostle Paul who says the very same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The hope for eternity. Let me start over. If uh, the benefits of our discipleship are simply benefits we receive here and now, then the cost of discipleship do not make sense. The hope of Christians' discipleship is a reward based in the life to come. So I move from one implication to one application, and the application is you and I must be heavenly-minded people. We must be people like these disciples who had their eyes fixed on the heavenly prize. People like that are referenced in the book of Hebrews whose eyes were set on a better country, a heavenly country. You and I must think more often and with greater clarity about the eternal reward for our faithfulness to Christ One day you will receive life, true life. Just imagine. Think about those times when you feel most alive, most in love, most passion, most created doing what you were created to do. That will be just a pale shadow of who you are then when you finally find out who you are. When you finally find yourself. Not only will for the first time we know Christ in eternity, but for the first time you'll know yourself and who you are now is just a shadow of who you will be then. And the life you live now is just a shadow of the life that you will enjoy then. So let me conclude. The reward of eternity motivated these disciples to do exactly what Jesus described. They denied themselves. They didn't practice self-denial they gave up everything and they followed Jesus even to the cross why not because they believed it would lead to a full productive life now because their hopes were set on eternity on the full life promised when Christ comes again in his glory our discipleship to Jesus has the same demands deny yourself Follow Jesus. Our discipleship is not likely to have the same consequences as theirs. Martyrdom is a very unlikely fate for any of us. Yet the demands are the same. Disown yourself. Follow Christ. Why? Because the Son of Man will come with the glory of his Father with all the angels, and he will repay each one according to what they have done." These first disciples were motivated by the promise of true and eternal life. And our discipleship must be motivated by the same. So here is your application for this week. (laughs) This week, I encourage you to think more clearly and more often about the eternal salvation that Jesus offers to all who are faithful to him.